0: in the place you would least expect it here on the campus of Vassar College. We're back from our spring break here for the second installment of our show. It's Mac Lederman alongside Alex Kupfer from the film department and Justin Patch from the music department. Thank you guys for uh, coming back. Yeah, and doing this again, I'm glad I talked you into a second show. That's amazing. And just
1: one correction, we just got back from winter break. Oh no. Unless you were in Miami, it was not spring it's, of any
0: sort. Oh, I think I'm just looking ahead because I'm very much looking forward to <laughs> spring got break many coming weeks up again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> just on the front of my mind right now, but um for now we're here in the dead of winter on Baxter's campus and um, a show that will have to begin with a little bit a little bit of a piece of gravity. We had originally a plan to show um over the break. Um, but I think we have to set a few minutes aside here to talk about Kobe being Bryant of the Los Angeles Lakers tragically perishing along with eight others, including his daughter Gianna in a plane crash. She was on his way to his new Mamba Academy to coach his daughter in a tournament that was going on there. And really one of the most stunning moments I think we've had in sports, one of the biggest stories of the year already. Um, we talked about this earlier, how we would approach this topic, and I think we all agreed on that. It will take some time to naturally reflect on Kobe in a way that's appropriate and you know, kind of constructs his legacy with the complexities and the nuance that any discussion of him really deserves. But for right now, as sports fans, as people, I think we should just kind of ruminate and take a couple minutes to you know, offer our initial reactions. So, um, JP, I guess I'll just start with you.
1: The first thing that struck me, and I, I guess I always knew this, but I sort of forgot that Kobe's younger than I mm. And to see that and to think about how much not only how much he accomplished but how much was ahead of him um and you know doing the film stuff and basketball stuff and being a sort of a stepping into the role as a mentor for some of the younger point guards who are coming in the league and yeah all that was just gone and it was a shock it was an absolute shock i was at the gym when i heard and all people were saying was like yo did you hear kobe died and I think people couldn't really gather anything else to say other than just they were shocked. Suddenly, this guy who, especially you know, students, he's been there their mm-hmm. entire lives, and suddenly he's not. Um, it's a lot to wrap your mind around, mm-hmm, for yeah, sure.
2: I think what's interesting there was a lot of sort of sports figures who were captured hearing about the news in real time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I saw a clip of Tiger Woods' caddy telling him, so "He's mm-hmm. just like I have shocking news." bunch of these NBA players found out, like, on the court as they were getting ready for shoot-around. So you see it in real time. And I think this is one of these, the first tragedies where you really sort of see not just the news of this breaking, but people's reaction to it and how, you know, he'd been around the NBA, what, 20 years as a player, been very much sort of part of the league since he retired, and what a sort of central part he is to this. And the, like, reactions to this are really striking, Mm -hmm. Um, the impact of it. I don't think you can you see sort of equivalence in the same way. Somebody this young, this popular, and this sort of influential, at such a young age, 41 is remarkable.
1: Yeah, especially somebody, oftentimes when, when somebody dies young, uh I think about, mm-hmm. with Len Bias, it was like what could have been. With this, it was sort of like somebody who had accomplished greatness, and then was, you know, beginning a, a, a second period, and was still as relevant in retirement as he had been as a player, which, I mean, how many people can you ever say that about, that they were as relevant basically as soon as they stepped off the court as they were when they were
2: on the court? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Somebody of his sort of stature to not go into coaching or just live on an island somewhere Mm -hmm. to still be centrally involved Um, I I think what you see is sort of these really interesting narratives that develop not only with his playing career, right? He has sort of by year two, he becomes Kobe, right? He becomes sort of the Black Mamba. But the post-career narrative becomes really interesting and sort of like the potential for sports and what it can sort of do and what it can serve as a platform for. So he became sort of this ideal of the athlete, right, using his sort of intensity for not just other athletic purposes, but for these larger sort of... Functions and goals. Well, and,
1: and the other thing too, because you mentioned not being a coach, not going into the front office, not being part of the NBA, yeah. the, the the company. Just it's, being Kobe. He was yeah. Kobe. He was yeah. an influencer. He was in, he yeah. was independent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think in some ways that's a really powerful place to be. Yeah. Right. When when you are, you're still the face of this billion dollar multinational franchise that needs you to be around, but yet you're not on their payroll, but you, your person is so deeply implicated with what the NBA means, not just in North America, but globally.
2: Right. And, and I think pushing what it means as well in sort of mm-hmm. ways that everybody would sort of appreciate mm-hmm. um, when it came to stuff like, you know, the Dear Basketball they won an Oscar for, or Kobe doing work, and then detail being sort of introspective in a way that you never see people of his stature do, Um, I I think is really telling while still being the face of the NBA, Um, and particularly promoting things like women's basketball, that was one of these really sort of recurring topics when he was discussed. It was less even about his career, they would list off the accolades. But the amount of time he spent on women's basketball and with his daughters, I think, is really telling Mm -hmm. as well.
0: I think overall just kind of like his construction of greatness and how much self-awareness went into that very construction of greatness. He's the type of athlete, you look at him and be like, every accomplishment, every accolade on his checklist in the Raptors, that was well-deserved because he put the work in. And I think that's what really makes this kind of like more stunning in the first place, knowing how he perished just that lack of control in those, you know, those final moments of him on the plane and Mm -hmm. knowing him just as kind of someone I grew up alongside with and, you know, a whole generation of people have grown up alongside with that everything he did was intentional and it got him to the place where he was hoping to go. So the stunning aspect of this is just knowing in that final moment that just wasn't the way Kobe Bryant envisioned you know, his life turning out, and that's not a very Kobe thing to have happen so.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it's like the discourse is an ideology of, like, hard work, right? Mm-hmm. That Kobe was as good as he was just because he was intense. Not because he was born, like, a genetic mutant, yeah. basically. But he worked hard and got that way. Jordan is certainly an equivalent, but Jordan was kind of a shitty person, um, where Kobe was sort of beloved by all. So, like, this intensity here was being harnessed for good purposes mm-hmm. instead of just being sort of, like this asocial person who made himself very rich and successful but didn't sort of function within society in the same way that Kobe did.
0: Mm-hmm. Especially as he moves into his SEC DAC and how that's kind of yeah. harnessed for him to be you know, the legendary sports, the legendary basketball figure who has that amount of presence that maybe someone like MJ or past basketball legends, you know, you see them on TV maybe during the NBA finals but they don't have that kind of presence in the continuation of the yeah. narrative of the season the way Kobe right. you know was involved kind of pinning on us be like go win the MVP this year right. this kind of that, that the understanding that he was always watching over the game yeah
1: yeah but but again the fact that he did it on his own terms mm-hmm. to me is, is the thing that is the most important part of his second act yeah is that he was carving out a space, actively carving out a space that hadn't been done before. Like the coaching thing, the GM thing, the owner thing, that's all been done before. He was doing this other thing.
0: And that's really powerful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think there's, you know, we can probably digest Kobe everything that he was doing for the game and could have been doing for the game in the future i think this is definitely a topic we should for sure ruminate on and maybe revisit on a future podcast but um i think for now this might be a good place to stop this conversation um you know and think about these complexities a little bit more going forward but i think it's interesting i know kind of scrolling through social media there's nothing about kobe but there's still important sports stories that are happening right now that um we should revisit and you know, situating, situating this tragedy in kind of a longer string or context of tragedies that are around the NBA right now with David Stern's death and mm-hmm. kind of the author of basketball itself, see another author of basketball itself, David Stern, kind of dying in this you know, similar pool of time and overall just kind of just great hope going into the NBA season and the series of disappointments and another one of them being this interesting decline in ratings that are happening right now across the league. Um, I have some numbers in front of me. Um, so according to Variety, viewership across ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV is down 15% year-to-year overall, according to Nielsen figures, which I guess is, you know... how did, Do you have any idea how they actually record Nielsen numbers? Yeah, yeah. Uh, people sign up and then they
2: record themselves. Yeah, you have a, a view box in your room. house yeah.
1: Yeah. that basically uh, registers what you're watching, mm-hmm. and then there is a... a a self-reported session, so they can figure out who in your house was watching
0: what when. Yeah. So it's kind of a two-step process. Are we sure we believe that? I've never actually met someone who actually has done that. Have you? Have you? So this, and this is a friend of a friend. <laughs> uh,
1: so one of my friends from Texas, uh, her friend from college, finished grad school, got a job teaching in San Francisco, and to help pay the rent, they became a Nielsen family. Wow. And she said they had this giant <laughs> box that sat on top of their TV with all these wires sticking out of it that just monitored everything that they watched. Now, I'm sure that technology in the last 15 years has been vastly streamlined, mm-hmm. but this was like in, you know, 2006 or yeah. 2007, right? Um, yeah, so Nielsen actually has pretty good data uh, on the whole, and they've, they've gone through some pains because there was a woman who worked for Nielsen who's in a lung, who's very high up. Mm. Um, And so they've gone through some pains to remedy, uh, have more complete coverage with, you know, different neighborhoods, different demographics, get out of just the urban centers, those sorts of things.
2: But networks and advertisers have trusted them for decades, so it's it's probably pretty damn good at this point. Mm -hmm. I do know that digital cable sort of changed certain things. Um, I know, personally, uh, Verizon offered us, like, all of their channels if they could track your viewing data. Um, hmm. So, I, I think they're sort of working it into the fact that they have access to it potentially. Yeah. I think they still need permission mm-hmm. and all of that, but they can get this information however they want. Okay. So, I, th- I, think, I do think it's yeah. fairly reliable.
0: As long as our film guy can buy by it, and Justin, you are <laughs> the first person to know someone who, knows someone who has had a Nielsen box. Let's take these numbers as they are: 15% decline. Um, if we are to believe this, like what do you th- what do you think this means? I'll ask you to put on your more sports media hat, maybe, and start digesting this turnaround in kind of NBA popularity and viewership.
2: So I, I think the first thing is that cable viewing is an entirety is down, right? And this is sort of really important. That I think all of cable viewing or ESPN, it's like 19% down. So it's a little bit better, right? It's still considered sort of you know more engaging than the other stuff. And to me, what's interesting is like. The narratives that develop in response to this Mm -hmm. Um, and and we saw this a bunch with the NFL where like ratings are down ESPN ratings are down in the conservative sphere they're like oh it's because of Colin Kaepernick and you know these athletes taking a knee in the NBA you have sort of narratives where it's just like the injuries right you have sort of like big players who are injured this year Uh, the Warriors right Steph Curry and Clay Thompson Zion. Uh, Zion is certainly a big one And Durant, and that seems to be a thing. But I think it's a larger sort of story going on with like the load management, right? Players are taking off back to backs. They're just not worried about the regular season because nobody pays Kawhi Leonard really to play in the regular season. season. It's the playoffs. So I think it's a larger sort of concern and recognition of players' power in some ways. Just say, I don't want to play back to backs, and coaches say, Okay.
1: Well, I mean, there's a lot of factors. One is the embarrassment of riches right when you only have two or three good teams yeah. you know exactly who's going to get the game of the week and they have a lot of people who want to see them a lot of people outside of the market outside of Cleveland or LA wherever he is want to see LeBron James play a lot of people want to see Zion play you know and I, I think in years past you had a handful of teams like this that had national viewership now like you can look up and down and there's so many good teams mm-hmm. that you don't have that one team where you're like on a Thursday night, everybody's gonna wanna see the, the 76ers yeah. play whatever. It's, that's not there anymore. Mm-hmm. So I think that's part of it. I think, I mean, it, it's sort of like the, the music industry went through this in the 80s when they changed the way that they tracked hits. And this is when you started seeing country music finally get on the top 40 when they did everything digitally rather than by hand mm-hmm. And suddenly they're like, oh, people were just weren't reporting how much country got sold, right? I think when you go on YouTube and you look at all the streaming figures, what you're going to find out is people still love the NBA. They still care about the NBA, but they're watching highlight reels. Yeah. you know, They're watching edited versions. They're only looking for their favorite player mm-hmm. rather than looking for the whole team. They follow that one player. That sort of thing is happening. And so, yes, the... The two-hour block on TV is not happening, but you're likely going to find people who are streaming for close to those number of minutes every other day, but just on
2: different platforms. And spread around. And the NBA really sort of pioneered and really sort of mastered the use of social media and things like YouTube compilations far better than any of these other leagues. Um, I I think that's an interesting way. If you sort of take the entire numbers, even if they're really spread out, Mm -hmm. you'll start to see that it is very different
0: yeah and especially just going off your point about social media the cultural readability of the NBA right now just based on the not the pure depth of the knowledge of the fandom you don't need to sit through and watch any game you don't need to watch a minute of a basketball game on television to understand exactly what is happening in the NBA okay so the four minutes that Zion scored 17 points in
1: that four minute clip Racked up like a million hits, like within an hour or two of it getting put up. That tells you that a lot of people are tuned into the NBA, but they're tuned in in ways that are
2: different from the way they were tuned in ten years ago. Yeah, and I think you make a good point that it is about the individual player. Like with Zion, I don't know if there'll be like this huge influx of Pelicans fans. Mm-hmm. There'll be Zion fans, oh. and that's what you sort of see. And this is why you get somebody like LeBron, who's played for all these different teams now. So it's this really interesting sort of shift where these guys don't mind sort of jumping around between teams because their fan base will follow them. Oh,
1: well, yeah. Like, uh, I mean, Giannis, when I when I saw the Pelicans play last year, they played the Bucks, and there were more Antetokounmpo jerseys <laughs> at that game
2: than Anthony Davis jerseys. Except right. Giannis is never going to leave the box. He's going to stay in Milwaukee. Unlike, <laughs> no, he's no, he's not. unlike Kareem and Oscar Roberts, who said, We have to get the hell out of here. Did someone say Miami stay. Beach,
0: maybe. Yeah. yeah. Um,
2: <laughs> don't tell him about it. He'll just stay in <laughs> Milwaukee. It's great weather. Um, but I, I think it's interesting because, like, how do you get somebody to stay? Because they want to go to these big markets. It works over and over again. Now, what's also interesting, too, is that you see the rise of, like, the secondary teams, like the Nets. Since Dr. J left the Nets, how many famous players have they had? How many stars have they had? Jason Kidd.
0: Yeah, sort of. And then the Vince Clippers. Carter. Okay. Yeah, but Vince Carter. eighteen that have Vince Carter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, I guess um, we got Vince Carter for some of the good years, though. Oh, okay. we got we got we had him for three. Or, I'm from New Jersey, so yeah. Um, but how I, long I were in, they?
2: How long was Kidd and Carter with those with the Nets?
0: We had a couple good years. It was Kidd, Carter, and Richard Jefferson was kind of like the big <laughs> three. Remember, at, at the face of the team, they hmm. they got. Kicked by the Lakers two t- years in a row in the finals. Rest in peace, Kobe. But, um, yeah. So, but, <laughs> but now you have these guys who go there because it doesn't yeah. matter, right? Mm-hmm. You don't have to go to the
2: Knicks. You don't ha- have to go to the Lakers. You can go to the Clippers. Like, the worst franchise in the league for decades, right? You can go there. The Nets, you know, not too far behind the Clippers. Mm-hmm. So it's a really interesting sort of thing because, like what you are saying, it doesn't matter. No,
1: man. Like, people who are Durant fans, they're going to watch the Nets yeah. when he comes back. Period. Like, everybody who was holding the down for Durant in Texas and in Maryland,
0: they're just going to tune in to Nets games now. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And TV is lagging behind this in many ways. If you look at the slate of the games that are on ESPN or on TNT during the time, these times they are kind of pinned in the corner because they have two or three teams that are frequently on national TV due to the star power. Who stars aren't playing? Yeah, Pelicans. No one wants to watch Brandon Ingram score thirty. I mean, he's like a borderline star, a kind of an exciting player. <laughs> but you're not watching an eight o'clock game on a Friday or a mm-hmm. Thursday to watch Brandon Ingram. So, how does TV, how does the sports media market kind of catch up to this new nucleus and this new centerfold of where the fandom actually occurs? All right, so I'm gonna give you a hot take. Okay. So, Make it hot, then.
1: So, so the, the one like analog I can have for this is NASCAR, right? So you can watch NASCAR <laughs> on TV, right? Driving a circle, or you can subscribe to the NASCAR package and you can pick the driver that you want to watch, and basically you watch them. Mm-hmm. And I met a dude when I was in Texas who was a NASCAR guy, and he was a uh, uh, Bobby. Uh, I can't remember the guy's last name. Allison. No, it's a double B, Bobby something or another. But he was like, when I watch NASCAR, I just watch him, right? And so NASCAR caught on to this. And then when you get the NASCAR package, you can get a package that only covers your driver. So you get the cam from inside his car, you have a camera that's dedicated to following him, and you just watch that person. And, like, it's entirely possible that, that NBA TV could basically make a bunch of highlight reels And you you subscribe the same way, you know, if you're out of market and you want to see your team and you automatically get this guy's highlight reel 82 times or however many you get and you get exclusive footage, post game interview, the whole bit. And so, literally, your fandom can revolve around this one or two players that you're really invested in.
2: They had the Zion cam for the first game. Sorry. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I watched it. I was like, this is no different. than It was just a static camera, like, on the Pelicans' bench. Yeah. I watched for five minutes and turned it off. I, I, to me, the closest analog you could have is the Red Zone channel for the NFL, right? But you're always a few seconds behind. And, you know, do you want to just see 25 dunks? Versus, certain, I, I think the way to do it is that you have multiple channels going on. So I could watch the entirety of Bucks. I don't know Pelicans, or you could just watch sort of highlights. Yeah. yeah. I
0: think I think the question is here is how do we recreate kind of the all inclusive package where I can go on to a sports media space or an entity and I can get exactly what I'm looking for in the modern context? Could I watch you know high stream or men's basketball, all the way up to the Knicks highlights on one touchable like over the top program on my phone. And I think that's what people want right now, but given kind of how professional league contracts, NBA contracts, the TV rights are
2: you're forgetting one huge, yeah. very important part of here, the advertisers, mm-hmm. right? The ones who spend the billions of dollars through yeah, the yeah. networks. Yeah, but
1: if if you're Nike and somebody wants to subscribe to the Zion channel and Zion's a Nike guy, you're you're going with that all day. And same same with with I mean Kawhi. He's the only New Balance guy. If you're New Balance And there's a Kawhi channel, and you have, you know, 100,000 people that are going to subscribe. You're going all in on that. Absolutely.
2: But but there's no way even Nike could afford something like that because there's too many advertisers, too much money sort of funneling in. Mm -hmm. Um, I I think you'd have to take, like, this huge bath on advertising rates, and nobody wants to do that. I I think it's an interesting, like, thought experiment. Yeah. But practically speaking, you're going to see ESPN saying no. You're going to see the advertiser saying no.
0: So you don't you don't see when the contracts do come up in three or four years time and whatever it is you expect there to be more of the same. Do you, will there be a more ginormous shift to streaming, or do you think the TV model is kind of too built in right. to what these networks need to you know kind of gross money, even though if it's self decapitating in some ways?
2: Because nowadays though you can you have the ESPN Game of the Night, right? You have sort of the big one. And if you want to watch, you know, jet, or Jets, the Nets mm-hmm. play the Bucks, you can buy the NBA League Pass for an extra 200 bucks a year. So they're making money off you multiple ways. Yeah. Who gives that up?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Like, the league's not going to give that up.
0: How do we deal with this problem, then, of piracy? I mean, it's so easy to stream all the games mm-hmm. on your computer for three, anywhere you want, anytime you want. And I think especially for a lot of younger fans, that's a definitely when I saw this thing about the ratings going down. I was like, oh, yeah, because everyone's streaming the games illegally. Mm -hmm. Is there a viable solution or workaround to that once the rights come up again?
1: I don't know how you stop piracy. I think the only way to do it is to reduce the cost so much that the glitchiness of, uh, of an illegal stream or whatever is just not worth it. There's a guy, when we were talking about this in the early 2000s, there was a guy who said to me, would you photocopy a newspaper? <laughs> so no. no. He's like exactly. If music is so cheap that you can buy the high quality version and you don't need to get the compressed MP three, the crappy version that you don't hear everything for free, or you could pay a little extra, that's when, you know, piracy will become irrelevant. And I think that's the thing with the NBA is mm. that it has to be affordable enough that piracy is not a good option.
2: Yeah. It happened with the streaming stuff like Netflix for a while, where you'd have options to watch it, so you wouldn't pirate it. Mm-hmm. Now everything's sort of going to these exclusive sites, so it's going to become a problem again. But I think the effects of piracy are often overstated. Um, the economic impacts of it tend to somewhat be overstated, because, yes, young people do that. But, like, would your parents do that to watch a particular basketball game?
0: No, but then again, who is the NBA's target audience?
2: Yeah, I get it's shifting, but it still sort of takes time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know. I think they'll sort of work around the margins a bit, but I think the basic structure will sort of stay the same.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would also just selfishly, because I exist in expensive markets, would like to see the tickets for basketball games yeah. come down in price. I mean, it, it's for the for the money that I was in the second row, or not the second row, but the second like tier of seats to go see uh anthony davis play would have put me in the nosebleeds in the boston garden Mm. right
0: and so like and wouldn't even got me in the door of madison square garden yeah wouldn't even got me there from all those who i know who've been to the new chase center over uh, over in san francisco Mm -hmm. they said that building kind of has the feel of a bank like you know that's a money-making machine from top to bottom and so much is lost when that's a situation, when, you know, there kind of becomes this inherent built-in classism to what it means to even, you know, be at a basketball game, be a fan at a basketball game. And I think basketball is a game that revolves so much on energy and instincts that when there's that type of situation there where everyone in the crowd is not feel genuine, doesn't feel like they have that type of fair connection to the players that they're being, like, you know... Bought out to their last dollar just to enjoy this thing. There's, you know, it's the the game is not where it needs to be in that yeah. retrospect.
1: Yeah, and I think I think one of the few guys who was able to do that, build a new stadium, change the vibe of the place, and still keep it fun, was Robert Kraft. Because mm-hmm. that old Foxborough Stadium was like. You get ready to get punched in the face if you're there, even if you're a Patriots fan. Like, that's just... It was like going to... It's like going to a game at Buffalo, right? Yeah. And when Robert Kraft bought the team and he built Gillette Stadium, he explicitly wanted to make it a family-friendly place. But, and of course, he lucks out to have Drew Bledsoe and then Tom Brady, so they were putting butts in the seats no matter what. But was able to get that stadium to be a really good vibe, something that players liked playing and living in Foxborough but it wasn't drunk, shirtless dudes (laughs) getting into fights just because that's what you do at a football game anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: I I think we'll see, though, is that as soon as sort of teams go bad or players get injured or leave, like, how often sort of attendance plummets. And, like, the efforts to make these sort of great stadiums, how problematic they are Mm because fans realize owners don't care. It's all just sort of like this exploitative relationship. Except for Steve Ballmer. He, he cares.
0: He cares a lot. Almost too much, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's uh, fair. I'll give you 30 seconds. What's happening to Tom Brady next year? Tom Brady... Keep it brief. Uh, Tom Brady is not going to be in Foxborough year.
1: That's That's my prediction. Retired or another team? That is a good question. I think he's going to go clock a year or two with another team. Okay. With the assumption... That he joins the front office when he's done. That's my guess. And you don't think he joined the Patriots front office? I just honestly, man, I don't think his wife wants to be in Massachusetts anymore. And she makes more money than he does. <laughs> I mean, that's what it is. So he's, I, he's not
2: a pauper though. He, he does okay for he himself. He does okay,
1: but I mean, when your wife—he's the only quarterback in the NFL who his wife makes more money than he does. Okay. And it's not by, like, a little bit. <laughs> there was not, not a few years where she doubled his salary. Wow. So, like, yeah, a boss lady says, I don't want to be here anymore. And does he still live in California? He, he, I, th- I believe he has he's always had a house everywhere. in California. Okay.
0: Yeah. That will make me feel great when I deposit my work study check uh, tomorrow and they <laughs> have, you know, like some money to my name. But, um, you know, for now, maybe we can kind of uh, shift once more and talk about a sport that, you know, if we think basketball is struggling baseball baseball is it's it's not a great time for baseball we'll put it that way but you know the mere fact we're talking about baseball kind of signifies that you know at least there's something there and i guess that is good for baseball in kind of the saddest way possible that's very
2: optimistic yeah Yeah, yeah, we're talking about a cheating scandal so i don't think that's a good you know the thing is i I was cheating in quotation i was in dc
1: over winter break And people down there have absolutely not forgotten that they won a championship,
0: (laughs) right? It's very much a thing in in D.C. I mean, that's the interesting part about baseball fandom, right? You have basketball that is becoming this kind of global audience. These players have, you know, face recognition from China and back. You have, you know, football, which is more of a domestic kind of Americana-type sport. Baseball kind of can make its reinvention if it really leans into regionalism, I think, because... You know, I follow the Yankees, I love the Yankees. Do I care what the Baltimore Orioles are signing this week? No. Did I follow the Garrett Cole situation from start to the end? Yeah, he's like, that's my that's my hometown baseball team. There's this something about that local connection to that team that I think is very powerful. I don't know quite the how to put my finger on it what it is, so I'd be interested maybe like, what you guys think. I, I think you're
2: absolutely right, and I think it goes back basically to the broadcasting of baseball games on the radio every single day. Mm-hmm. It's six months out of the year, you hear it. Um, versus football, it's not an event thing, right? You just turn it on and you listen to, you know, Vince Scully, Ernie Harwell, Bob euchre, these guys every day. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think one of the challenges has been actually sort of with ESPN, and they put the Cubs, the Red Sox, the Yankees, and the Dodgers. Always those teams. Always, always. Um, and I've noticed a lot, just I'm a Brewers fan, and they've been good, and they're still very rarely on. Um, and, and I think that's been a big problem. They can't have the national audience at the NBA or NFL does. And yeah. it's really hurting the game. Mm-hmm. Um, and their stars, frankly, are boring. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Mike Trout. <laughs> was, like, yeah, it's, it's just
1: a freak of nature athlete. And honestly, if he came by my class, I would not know who he was. <laughs> yeah. Um, like,
2: I just don't know what like, he like. there's better numbers than Mickey Mantle at this stage in his career. Better numbers than Stan Musial. Yeah. And how many ads do you see Mike Trout? Um, and
0: He's from New Jersey. Yeah. He should be in every New yeah. Jersey ad. Yeah. Well, what does he even? What does he even sell? Like, if you were like, here's Mike Trout, like, right. use him to make money? Like, what do you? What do you put well, him if on? I a three hundred million dollar contract. I wouldn't do any yeah. ads either. I'd be like, I don't need that money. Like, come on now. I mean, yeah, Jose Altuve, a guy who, you know, kind of just jacked little guy can hit, hit home runs four hundred feet. Suddenly, he has this arm monitor on his hands to kind of you know steal signs and anticipate the pitch before it even coming. Um, when you guys heard that kind of development of the story and kind of the fallout of it, what has been your tech takeaways so far? The thing is, I'm not surprised. Mm-hmm. I'm, I mean, the thing about it is like,
1: cheating is incentivized. And I forget who was being interviewed on ESPN. And he was like, look, there are 30 owners in Major League Baseball. If you went to them and said, look, you do something that's not above board, but you win a championship, uh, you'll lose your coach. You'll lose two of your coaches and your GM, and you'll lose draft picks for two years. Every single one of them would say, "Yeah, go ahead and do it."
2: Yeah, especially they were like the worst team in the league for three years. Yeah, before terrible. Yeah, uh,
1: and so yeah, w- w- when when that level of cheating is incentivized, like I, like I can't even say I'm disappointed. I'm just sort of like, well
0: i had hoped that this wasn't the case but it is and i'm not surprised yeah i mean the economic and cultural viability of winning a championship is so high like when you said that i immediately thought of the clippers Mm -hmm. trading away their entire future to bet on these next three and four years because you know winning a championship is the be-all end-all no matter which way you really slice it yeah the
2: nationals could be terrible for the next decade i don't think people will care right um And I think part of it, too, is that, like, technology and baseball go back to the beginning. And there's always this cat-and-mouse game and always these fairly arbitrary rules. And I think one of the things people struggle with in baseball is, like, their arbitrary rules with just everything, the unwritten rules. And the use of technology and the use of sort of, you know, things like sign stealing have always sort of been weird. Um, You know, you look at sort of the attempts to decipher signs from the other team's dugout. Where if you do it by yourself or in collaboration with the other partners, that's fine. But if you start using any sort of technology, that's a problem. But yeah. what's considered problematic technology? Mm-hmm. Nobody really knows. That, that was kind of my uh-huh. question.
0: Is you know my take to this was I don't even really feel like this is cheating. You know, if you have the technology and other right. teams are doing it, and it's the way you can do it in a competitive way. That you know creates an edge. You have the guys in the NFL stadiums who you know stand up on the box mm. and they use technology to coach from up from up there, right?
2: So there's a long history um, with part- college football, which sort of comes before when you could use game fills, when you can scout and do things like that. And you can do it if your team's involved, but not if your team's not involved. If you go to like a third party game, things like that become a problem. One of the issues, though, what I thought is the answer is more technology. Like in the NFL, Tom Brady and every quarterback has the coach's, you know, voice in his head until the last 15 seconds. One of the linebackers, right, always has... Well, depending who your defensive captain Right, is. so one player... Yeah, one player on the, the defense, defense has, it. has it. So they've sort of embraced this because they say, like, we can't really... We don't want to deal with this, right? Yeah. We don't want to deal with these attempts to police. Um, and not like college football, like, the rules around sharing game films are so complex and so arcane that you start to see this ridiculousness. So the answer, I think, is just more technology. So my
1: idea... And this would here we go. You know, and this would d- disrupt how these things work. Is that you have the pitcher and the catcher have an earpiece, mm-hmm. and the pitcher says this pitch into his glove, and the catcher either says yes or no, right. and that's it, right? So you have the kind of communication that can't be stolen visually. The difference is typically they're catchers that are the ones that are sort of calling the game, right. and you have to put the responsibility on the pitcher or you find a way
2: to, uh, to have the catcher be a little bit more active. Or mm-hmm. even, like, the bench coach. Somebody, like, in the dugout who sort of dictates the sequence, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have the batter can always have an earpiece in there too, right? Mm-hmm. Saying, like, look for this or look for this. Um, so you heighten the strategy of this, because the strategy of it is great. Like you watch Mets broadcasts where they talk about like sequencing pitches. Mm-hmm. That to me is sort of way more interesting than just like, this. that was a nice curve. Yeah. Or wow, that was a great heater. Thinking about sort of the larger strategy lets you sort of talk about the technology and the sort of what the managers are doing, because that gets really interesting.
1: Sitting with somebody, like watching a baseball
0: game, who understands pitch strategy is super fun. Right? Yeah. I mean, that's the thing about baseball, right? Like, what makes this interesting is the amount of a mental game it really is at the yeah. end. But how do you take that kind of readability of what you need to enjoy the game on that level, and how do you package it and put it on a way to TV that is, becomes marketable and you know, becomes readable to a wide audience that maybe doesn't have time to watch four hours of a baseball game? All I'm going to say
1: is that 20 years ago, the NFL made no attempt— to reach out to women because it was assumed that because women didn't, you know, play catch with their dads that that they would they could never understand the game of football and they were hugely wrong. Mm-hmm. I mean, Mina Kimes is like the perfect example of a woman who like hearing her and Dominic Foxworth talk about football like she knows football, right? right? And so I'm saying like look, if football can do that, baseball can do that. They just have to be
0: creative about how that gets done. Mm-hmm. I mean, any final ideas on how that gets done?
2: I, I think more technology and explain the processes here. Yeah. Where it's not just 100 mile an hour fastball, that was a good pitch. Like, yeah. yeah. But explain <laughs> sort of why, why this was the third pitch in the sequence. Give us some, some sort of idea of like what these people are doing and why they're doing it. I think sort of engaging viewers more as like intelligent yeah. sort of consumers of media. Um, would really help instead of like assuming you know about these narratives yeah. and these long traditions, explain that and mm-hmm. contextualize it all.
0: Or taking out this kind of assumption that you watch baseball passively, you know, mm-hmm. how is there a way to enjoy the game more actively where you're thinking through kind of what's going on? Why is this person on second base? What pitch is coming next? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, kind of to the level or the extent you, you know, the players on the field are doing so themselves. Yeah, I mean, I was talking to Bill Hoynes once and he was raving
1: about. Um, a 15-pitch at-bat that he thought was one of the best like pitcher-hitter battles that he had seen all year. And to listen to him talk about that one at-bat yeah. was like, yeah, if you understand the game at that level, man, every single pitch is like, wow. Mm-hmm. But you, again, I agree with you, broadcasting has to
0: basically be an outreach arm mm-hmm. for Major League Baseball. Yeah. I mean, for now, if you want to catch me on the broadcast of the Vassar men's baseball (laughs) team games, I'll be doing those later on in the spring, so look out for those. Um, For now, though, I think we're at, like, probably a pretty good stopping point for this episode of the show. I liked what kind of we did last time, where I asked you to maybe give kind of a 30-second or one-minute monologue on something in sports you're thinking about that um, we maybe hadn't yet a chance to get to or hasn't been talked about nearly enough. Um, Do you guys feel like you got something maybe off the top of your head? I mean,
1: obviously, like, Kobe Bryant is is the thing that is just circling around as the sports story that's probably going to dominate the next couple of months. Obviously, David Stern is another one. Uh, the Super Bowl, that's kind of the obvious one. Yeah. For me, the coaching matchup mm-hmm. is perhaps the—I the, mean, it's, it's everything you want in a Super Bowl. Great offense versus a killer defense. The sort of wily old head coach <laughs> versus the young upstart, like— I just the second half adjustments are going to be the thing to look out for because that's going to be the 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 Super Bowl the match that happens is each team's first outing in the second half, right? That that's what I'm interested in. Yeah,
2: Um, you also have you know sort of uh, this amazing quarterback versus sort of like this finely oiled running game, sort of like these nerves about Mm. you know the death of the running game, and the Niners are just like, no, no, no this is nonsense. <laughs> no. um,
1: Some dude who was not like not drafted, cut seven yeah. times. No, he's going to run for <laughs> 220 yards. Yeah. In Four the... touchdowns. <laughs> I mean,
2: it's just like all of these talking heads, and you just see the Niners like, oh, we were super wrong. Yeah. It's kind of remarkable. Uh, one thing that I thought of is sort of like this connection between fantasy and gambling, where Roger Goodell gave an interview where he's talking about how they're sort of embracing gambling, right? The Raiders are sort of coming to Las Vegas and just like this willingness to see fantasy and gambling as sort of one and the same. Mm. So within a year, you're mm. going to start to see the NFL as sort of like the sports leader really embracing this. Yeah. So I think it's going to be this really seismic shift here.
0: Mm. I definitely think we should dive a little bit more into kind of gambling futures and sports sure. a little bit, maybe yeah, yeah. In a different show. Um, For now, I'm not really thinking about anything because I'm apparently looking forward to spring break already. (laughs) So I guess we'll close the show right here. This is Mac Learman alongside Alex Cuffer of Vassar's film department and Justin Patch of Vassar's music department. Thank you guys both for uh, coming on for a second show. Thanks a lot.